Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. On violence. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and I would imagine it's been another one of those. A week, Jane, listener, when the pundits kept telling us the Caring Business Class Party budget was more a Socialist Party budget, a, a Labor budget they kept bemoaning, when it was patently obvious it couldn't have possibly been a Labor budget. Everyone knows the Socialist Party would never do anything to hurt the banks, like impose a tax on them. If anything, it'd probably just hand them lots more of our money. But having thought hitting the banks isn't a bad idea, ultimately I felt ashamed, sick with guilt at so unfair a thought, caught up in the populist myth that banks exist but to rip us all off when nothing could be further from the truth. They're screaming and yelling that stuffed pig sound we heard, with due respect for stuffed pigs, at being asked to pay a levy on super profits over and above or whatever, has nothing to do with greed or ripping off or self-interest but is based purely on the very reason they exist, community spirit, altruism, commercial philanthropy, expressed by ANZ for another zillion, Supremo Shane selling it. This is a tax on the millions of ordinary true blue Aussies the tears welled, or the well-named nab your money. It is not just a tax on a bank, it is a tax on every true blue Aussie. It's distress supremo and screws them, Thor, burn the books, couldn't believe the injustice. Banks exist to serve and support their customers, he stated the obvious, and worse packs Brian Hitcher every time. We believe this hits all true blue Aussies. When we hear that, we realise these people exist only for all of us. Hang self-interest, driven not by the bottom line or greed, but by altruism, compassion, empathy, caring only for the bottom line in that it helps them care for those for whom they care, all of us. So, listener, I hope you share my shame, my guilt at the cruel thoughts I have had about these bastions of community welfare. And how dare those same pundits suggest the tax was payback for the banks appointing a former socialist. And if she ever was, it's very, very former. Former socialist Anna Blight on workers as its union boss, evil union boss pejorative. Oh no, sorry, that slipped out. It, it's Respectable Bankers Association, Respectable Supremo. Nothing to do with being a union. That's, that's for the great unwashed. Appointing Anna for who would believe that a charming Christian humanitarian like big economic guru scuttled them more lash than would be so bitter, so vitriotic, so vengeful. Why, we recall how his charming Christian humanitarianism drove his every caring policy and treatment, treatment of when he was Minister for Concentration Camps, Razor Wire and Sink the Boats. In fact, that portfolio has brought out the best in a succession of sadists, uh, sorry, uh, ministers. It's been suggested you might have to slash the interest rates you pay people who hand you their money, we put to the big bank supremos. 
We'd love to, but it's difficult to reduce interest rates below zero. No, no, we'll just have to increase the giving us your money fee, which already applies and guarantees nothing as dangerous as actually having to pay interest occurs. Yes, what will this new tax cost you? Because we know you already meet your legal tax obligations. You tell us that regularly. Every cent. Don't you mean every billion? Every cent. What will it cost us? A bloody fortune on tax lawyers and tax accountants to ensure we continue to meet our legal tax obligations, ensure we remain below the new threshold for this levy, for instance, legally, of course. Suppose there's some consolation for the poor dears that the bloody fortune on tax lawyers and accountants is itself tax deductible. And don't we love their consistency? When Ken Henry was head of Treasury, he wrote that report which led to the ill-fated resource rent tax, forcing the poor besieged resource companies, poor Gina and co, to spend a few trillion to avoid being taxed by a cruel socialist government and prompting the Troublewazzy Capitalist Review to attack Henry for trying to screw the poor miners. But now, the same Henry is head of the Nebula Money Bank. He has attacked this levy as a war on just everything, prompting the Capitalist Review this time to back him to the hilt. For the Capitalist Review is as incensed at this tax as it is always incensed at the greed of evil trade unions, demanding tougher laws until evil unions behave like good trade unions, because the Capitalist Review knows that will be good for workers. The budget has proved a boon for the sundry state... Uh, sorry, constabularies, as the Canberra lot have leased heaps of booze-stroke drug buses to be stationed outside every doll bludger office. Win-win for those who fail the test are already in the lockup and will simply be transported to the cells at the end of the doll bludger business day. It's a great policy. We caught one of those who have devoted their lives to the common good as he emerged from the Parliament House Members' Bar toilet. It will stop these drug-addicted bludgers. That's it. We would have liked to have sought more insights into the dangers of drug addiction, but he was off indirectly zigzagging to the taxpayer-subsidised bar to order another well-earned drink. Those subsidised well-earned drinks require a few savings measures elsewhere. For instance, a bloke interviewed the other day who lost a leg in a shark attack, knocked back for a disability pension because he failed the savings measure percentage of disability test. So we suggest they attempt to contact the shark and see if it can't eat the other leg, which we reckon would get the victim a bit closer to the required percentage, which we think starts at 100%, achieved through death. Also a few days ago, the private education minister Simon Berringham declared, we won't be bullied or blackmailed by a Catholic schools campaign over funding levels. And I thought, I'll hang on to that to see how long that resolve lasts. Well, didn't have to keep it long. Three days later, the same Simon Berringham announced the very concessions he wouldn't be bullied or blackmailed about, showing how principle directs everything politicians do. Ditto with our great media proprietors. Don't they love a good, juicy, poor, true blue Aussie locked up in some foreign hell jail story?
the woman in Bali, the woman now in Colombia, every story describing the jail conditions as hell. Just this morning, Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, P1 Pointer, Mum cops another year in Bali hell. Knowing, of course, that right here in True Blue Aussie, our prison system is a Garden of Eden, a terrestrial paradise. Evil criminals are knocking the doors down to get inside. Banner headlines, editorials and letters columns demanding lax authorities, particularly socialist government pejorative Dan lax authorities, inject a large dose of Bali and Columbia hell into our life of luxury system. Why the whopping sin at the weekend revealed the most shocking examples of that paradise in our youth jail system. Young kids have been given pizzas and worse, taught how to cook. Where's the justice? Jokes on us, screaming across P1. And as the victims of the joke, surely it's time to act. How dare these children be taught to cook? How dare they be allowed to enjoy pizza? Well, as it turned out, reading on, they are mini pizzas and they're a reward for kids behaving themselves, presumably behave as determined by the authorities. So let's get on the phone, Lister, and let our MPs know we agree with Lord Rupert and his deep-thinking correspondence that anyone sent to prison, sentenced or on remand, have her his papers stamped never to be released. The key thrown away and life made a hell. No mini pizzas, no learning life skills like cooking, because they won't need them, because they'll eat prison food for the rest of their worthless lives. Finally, recovering from the shock of his favourite far-far-right fascist being defeated in France by the mere far-right, very, very bad, very bad, US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo Donald Trample the poor, as an aside, counting those who bothered to turn up and the 12% who deliberately lodged a blank ballot paper as a protest against the big choice, the far-right winner stormed home, elected by about 40% of the people. Anyway, Donald finally made it clear why he fired the FBI guy Comey. Not because he, Comey, was investigating Donald, because Donald said he wasn't and Donald would never tell an untruth. And quite often he possibly doesn't. He just doesn't know what he's talking about. For instance, he keeps quoting former warmongering president. Well, that's unnecessary. They all are. Warmongering president Lyndon Baines Johnson for initiating this bill relating to churches not donating to political campaigns when the bill was initiated by a different Johnson. But why waste valuable money-making time checking history? No, the real reason for your fired revealed when he pronounced Comey's name. Comey, Donald said. Thank goodness we've got Donald to protect liberty, freedom and democracy single-handed, like Rambo single-handedly winning the Vietnam War, and Donald probably thinks he did. A commie in the FBI, J. Edgar turning in his grave. Good afternoon. Do you get the feeling that Kevin's not too keen on our Douglas? It comes through like that, doesn't it? That's Mr Kevin Healy, and he'll be doing more of his stuff tomorrow, or strutting his stuff, I suppose you'd say, from 9 o'clock till 10 tomorrow morning on City Limits. Stop bailing our kids. 
The juvenile justice system is a racist disgrace. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is launching a campaign to highlight factors including poverty, homelessness, loss of culture and racist over-policing as key contributors to youth incarceration in Victoria. The campaign kicks off with a week of action starting on the steps of State Parliament on Thursday the 25th of May at 12.30. Be there. For more information including campaign details go to isjamelbourne.com Let's hold the Andrews government to account and halt the law and order race to the bottom. ISJA Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Yesterday, the 15th of May, was the 69th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba, the catastrophe or disaster, when more than 700,000 Palestinian Arabs fled or were forced from their homes. And today, Palestinian refugees are the largest remaining refugee population in the world. I'm speaking with Palestinian-Australian Yusuf Al-Rimawi, presenter of Palestine Remembered here on 3CR on Saturday mornings. And we'll mainly be focusing on the 1,500 Palestinian prisoners who are entering their fifth week of an open-ended hunger strike to pressure Israel to improve prison conditions. But first, Yusuf, could we look at Nakba on a personal level, the impact on your own family? Each and every Palestinian around the world is affected by what happened in '48 and the year before for warfare between uh, the Palestinians and what later became Israel. The expulsion of two-thirds of the Palestinian community and later became the refugees and the theft of their land and property in '48. Later on, um, the occupation of the remaining land in uh, West Bank and Gaza has made every Palestinian either a refugee or under occupation or under siege in Gaza or those who remained and became Israeli citizens made them uh, third or fourth class citizen after the European Jews, Eastern Jews, and then the Palasha Jews, and then comes the Arab uh, Palestinian uh, citizens of Israel. Now, in my family, both grandfathers became refugees in 1948. The father of my father uh, was kicked out from Majd al-Sadiq in 1948 and went to a village in West Bank called Beit Rima. That's their uh, original village. They stayed for two years. In '48, Palestine had no rental system, so you either you either have your own home, or you will have to stay at somebody's place. So they stayed for two years at one of the relatives, and then they went and moved to a, a refugee camp at the beginning of uh, what we call UNRWA. United Nations Relief and Work Agency and distributed them to uh, refugee camps. So they went uh, to Jericho. And from Jericho, after the 1967 occupation of West Bank, they have to go again. So there were three waves of expulsion that one family, that's the father of my father, had to go through. And then from Jordan starts another, uh, another journey. My mother's father is from uh, Safad, the city of Safad. And they went on foot uh, in May 48 to Syria, of course, via Lebanon, a journey that took months and months 
And my mother was born a year later in Syria. And of course, they had to be in limbo from 48 to 57 until the refugee camp of Yarmouk was built and a piece of land was dedicated to, to them and they started their own, uh, they basically built their own house. But we all know that w what happened in Syria. So my mother's brothers and sisters and family who all lived in Yarmouk camp were affected by the Syrian crisis and became uh, refugees again. And now they are uh, in six or seven countries scattered because of their statelessness. So the Nakba is ongoing. We are still affected by it seven decades later. And of course, the Palestinian prisoners strike is one part of that. There are estimated to be 1,500 prisoners on a hunger strike. It's now the fifth week. From your understanding, what condition would the men be in in terms of the consequences of their health for so long without sustenance? Well, we are very concerned about their health. It's going to be a month for them uh, in, on the 17th. Tomorrow will mark uh, the first month. And you can imagine what it means for a person to go without food for 30 days. Uh, there are concerns on everything, dehydration and also concerns of weakness. And not all prisoners can can cope with hunger the same way. After that, Israel has been trying to separate them from their own lawyers. No families have been given to any of the prisoners on hunger strike during the last month. So we don't know. We don't know uh, what's happening with them. We don't know how they are coping. We don't know if uh, some of them are going through medical difficulties. But what we know is that they have enough determination and steadfastness that will not be broken. And like Marwan Barghouti, the leader of the mass hunger strike, said, our chains will be broken before we are. Have you been able to confirm that the prisoners are being fed salt water? Those who are on hunger strike, I can confirm that they they are uh, their only supply is water and salt. I can. Of course, Israel has been trying to spread the lies in different ways. First, by saying that some of them have decided to break their strike and to start uh, negotiations. Others, and, and of course, uh, we later uh, saw Israel also spreading another lie that Marwan al-Barghouti was uh, filmed or caught on tape while eating. And later, of course, it, it was confirmed by experts of uh, video tapes that this is a scam. So Israel <clears throat> is trying to break the pressure that it's under because of their strike. But we know... Uh, we know these tactics very well because that's not the first time and we know that Israel is an expert in spreading lies and that's, that is expected. Is it also being confirmed that the prisoners are being force-fed and that they're bringing in doctors from overseas because the Israeli doctors will not do it because it's illegal? Whether it took place or no, uh, whether they are forcing some or um, some prisoners to be uh, force-fed, 
uh, we don't know, but Israel in the past has tried this technique, uh, which is a very dangerous and very painful te technique by uh, inserting hose in the, uh, from the nose uh, of the prisoner and uh, by force feeding them, uh, especially milk and other liquid food. But to the credit of the uh, Israeli doctors, they refused. And uh, we know that uh, we're considering uh, importing doctors from other countries, those who will be with money, are ready to sell their conscience, are ready to sell their principles, and are ready to break the oath they did when they joined the uh, medical sector, because no ethical and moral doctor will agree, but you will, you will eventually find somebody. So let's hope that this doesn't happen and they will not force-feed any Palestinian prisoner. I'm sure that you're monitoring the Israeli media. What are the Israeli people being told about this hunger strike? When it started, there were the left newspaper, Haaretz, of course, was the most, I would say, the closest to the reality by highlighting the demands and telling uh, the Israeli audience why the Palestinians are on hunger strike, their medical negligence, their deprivation of visits to their own lawyers and family members, and of course the demands of the other uh, Palestinian prisoners. But apart from that, the mainstream media in Israel has chosen a racist approach, and uh, some of them, um, of course, uh, reflected uh, what's been echoed in the Israeli society by saying that let them die, uh, we don't care, it's, the, it, it's not our fault if they, if they all die. And we saw that as this strike went on and as the uh, issues escalated, we saw that Israel was more and more embarrassed because there is a huge media pressure, especially in, uh, in the West, that sabotages Israel's image because Israel wants to introduce itself as the country of political plurality and the country of more democracy and secular uh, approach. Of course, the, um, this is those who are close to the events know that this is a lie. So uh, they have been spreading lies by either saying that, that some of the prisoners have broke, like we said a few minutes ago. The Israeli media is part of uh, the tactic, and sometimes the government or the basically the authorities of the jail uh, use the media to uh, achieve a, a political uh, agenda. And that's why I view the Israeli media as complicit. Is there any pressure coming from the Arab countries onto Israel? The answer is no. No pressure from the Arab country on Israel. However, there is a, po a popular a popular support, the Arab population, six years after the, the so-called Arab Spring, the Palestinian support or the, the Arab support of the Palestinian cause has deteriorated. And this actually put it back to, to, its, uh, to, to where it should be. We've seen people in Lebanon, Jordan, Morocco, Algeria, and several other Arab countries are joining the water and salt challenge and filming themselves and uh, doing uh, joining the online campaign or by protesting or by either doing the symbolic hunger strike 
or some of them have actually joined the strike, the hunger strike, like a few, like like a few uh, people in Algeria. So on popular level, yes, there is support, but on official level, nothing. In the West Bank and Gaza, I would imagine that many people are protesting, and there's been at least one death. There is uh, one death, and uh, it's the mother of a prisoner. Uh, in West Bank, there's more uh, protest than in Gaza for political reasons, because the leader of the strike is basically Marwan Barghouti, and Hamas does not want to either uh, stop or endorse the strike. However, there are support uh, all across the Palestinian uh, diaspora, but the biggest uh, form of uh, solidarity comes from the West Bank and from the Palestinian refugee camps in Lebanon. What about the US? What's happening there? They're one of the major supporters of the State of Israel. The United States, I will be surprised if anything positive come out from America. But from the people themselves? From the people themselves, there is a shift. There is a shift in the, um, the popular position on the Palestinian issue. And that is not only in the United States. Here in Australia, there is a shift. And that shift is attributed to a list of factors. One of them is the media and social media because we used to rely on mainstream media up until 10 years ago. But with Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, people started the horizontal media and people started getting to know. And therefore, now there is more support for Palestine in the United States than it used to be. And that is on one level. On another level, although the arrival of Trump was a bad news for nearly uh, everybody, except uh, those who support the racism and uh, other radical views. However, his, his uh, approach to the Palestinian issue is unpredictable, and even these valleys, those who, who really welcomed his arrival, cannot read him. And therefore, there might be unexpectedly uh, positive outcomes, but it will be limited and contained. Tell us about the salt water campaign on Facebook. The salt water campaign is an online challenge where a person puts some salt in a cup of water and drinks it on camera in solidarity with the Palestinian prisoners. It was initiated by the son of Marwan Barghouti. And... At the end of the video, you would nominate somebody to accept you. I would say, I challenge this person, and the person will either accept or deny the challenge. And if he accept or she accepts it, then she films or he films himself doing the same challenge and nominate another person, and so on. So it started a few days after the beginning of the hunger strike by the son of Marwan Barghouti, Arab Barghouti. And then, of course, uh, it was spread uh, among the Palestinians and Arabs. And luckily, and to the credit of the um, civil society in the Arab world, we've seen hundreds of thousands of people accepting the water and salt challenge. Here in Australia, 
We have seen members of the, of the Palestinian community in Australia joining that online campaign. We have seen uh, Australians like uh, Bishop George Browning, the head of the Australian Palestinian Advocacy Network, APAN, joining that and filming himself uh, accepting the water salt challenge. So it's a form of solidarity, and it just shows how the world is with Palestine and how the world supports the demands of the Palestinian political prisoners. It impacts on Israel by putting more media pressure, by, because Israel has been trying to isolate the political prisoners by not even allowing visits to their own lawyers or to their Red Cross. It's exposing Israel's endeavors to isolate them. In fact, the more they go in their isolation attempts, the more support they will have from their own families, the Palestinian population, and the international solidarity. And people like you, Jan, now the fact that you are speaking about them in Melbourne, in Australia, very far away, this tells the, the, the Israel and its supporters that the Palestinian prisoners and the Palestinians in general are not alone in their struggle for freedom and independence. And it's very important too here at 3CR to have a Palestinian program. Absolutely, and I have to say that uh, without, a pro- without a station like 3CR, the representation of the Palestinian cause will not be the same. And it's not because of my program that's half an hour a week, which is now 13-year-old, but also... Um, because of the segments on Palestine on other programs like your program, Jan, and many others. So this level of support is very important, and it's not on the it's not secondary. It's really towards it. It, it fits in in the international solidarity, and it empowers the Palestinians, and it empowers their, their prisoners and those who really show unbro- an unbreakable steadfastness on the ground. If you'd like to give the time for it. My program is aired on Saturdays, 9.30 to 10 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, it's podcast. And then we put it on podcast on the 3cr.org.au forward slash podcasts. And you just look for Palestine Remembered's latest episodes. And, uh, yes, we put every, every episode on podcast. Thanks, Yusuf. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that's Yusuf Al-Rimawi, Palestinian activist, Palestinian broadcaster here on 3CR. And as he said then, the program goes to air on Saturday morning at 9.30 and is podcast3cr.org.au and the program is called Palestine Remembered. And the Facebook page is Water and Salt in Solidarity with Palestinian Prisoners. Water and Salt in, pal- in Solidarity with Palestinian Prisoners. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. 
Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. It's a while since we've heard from human rights activist Jack Smith, who lives in Narragin, Western Australia. So let's hear about what's been on his mind. We're in a new world, I think, in a different world than we were 10 years ago. The horror side of the 21st century is now revealing itself. We've all had the absolutely beautiful side of the 21st century when uh, the New Year's night of the millennium was celebrated by television, interlinked through satellites by all most countries in the world. So the world almost became one in a glorious celebration of the new millennium. But now, of course, we have a five-year-old who is too rich and too stupid to even think of who is now the leader of the free world. We've got Donald Trump, we've got Erdogan in Turkey, who wants to look like Adolf Hitler. We've got one or two other really, really stupid people who are now world leaders. So what's happened to the post-war world? I mean, it started all so beautiful after we finally got rid of um, Nazism and uh, Holocaust and uh, Adolf Hitler where the combined countries came together as an alliance, and not only that, NATO was formed, but moreover, the International Court of Justice operated from The Hague in the Netherlands. Uh, The United Nations was formed, and we promised never again to that extremist fascism, the dictatorship of evil. We promised the world that would never, ever happen again. But of course, we can launch a thousand bombs on a bunker in Berlin. We can physically kill Hitler. But did we kill that mentality? No, of course, we can't kill that mentality. So even in the promise of a new world, which would be a world acting as one against evil, we now have a really shaky framework. The United Nations is shaking in its boots with all these stupid, egotistical, short-sighted merchants running countries. And Trump is one of the worst examples we can think of, but it's good because he's on TV or radio every day. Every day we are monitoring what this idiot is producing the idiot world leader in America. It's on show for all to see. But, you know, really, how fragile was that consensus, the post-war consensus of the Western countries that said, 
never again to fascism and the world will be one, we will be um, acting as one against evil. Has that collapsed? Um, what is the future of human rights in the world? I mean, we have an international standard for human rights and for human rights crimes and for war crimes and for slaughter by dictators. There is an international law and an international framework for that, but how solid is that? I mean, look at Australia. For decades, we've been hearing from conservative politics that, no, and it's not a racist country. Well, I'm sorry, we are a really racist country. Racism was government design under the white Australia policy. Have we had a national apology in Australia for the white Australia policy? No, we've never had a national apology for it. Have we had a long debate condemning racism in Australia, in the parliament? No, we haven't. Because every bullying politician is trying to kill open debate about the racism. So racism is still rampant ask Muslim women, and xenophobia is still part of the political mix in Australia. Ask anyone who's ever been spat at or treated in a racist way or treated by extreme right targeting. So there is a problem with human rights in Australia. It is totally shaking. Um, it is shaking also in Europe when we have an an idiot dictator like Erdogan running uh, Turkey and destroying the democratic institution Turkey is. There is something that is beyond our control. And are we having a world that is now completely shaking in its boots? Or is the consensus still there in a shaky form? There is a big question now hanging over the world. Are we managing? Will we manage to implement policies to stop climate change? Uh, will we manage to implement policies that end the heinousness of human rights crimes? Are we uh, implementing policies that stops idiots and wankers of five-year-old with too much money from becoming world leaders? How can we stop this? Can we have systems in place which will see the end of not just Donald Trump, but all the other idiots who think they are fit to govern countries, but who aren't. What is the framework and how can we guarantee it? Is there something wrong? I mean, we do know that there was something wrong in the makeup of the United Nations when the victorious allies inserted clauses where they would have a veto. America has a veto. China has a veto. Russia has a veto. With the Security Council, there is a, a structural problem there. Will it survive? Will the post-war consensus of decency and goodness in governance, international governments, will it survive? Or is it being shaken up so much that it will decay? And what will replace it if it decays? We're at a, a crucial junction of uh, a fragile balance in the world of um, international governance. How are we going to solve it? How indeed. That's Jack Smith from Fro Project Safecom in Narragin, Western Australia, south east of Perth. 
lovely place, I've been told. It's um, 38 minutes past four o'clock. And just a reminder that in four weeks' time to the day, the Radiothon for Tuesday Home Time will be on. And I do believe that I have quite a considerable amount of money to raise in the two hours that I have the program. So I'm relying on regular listeners, and that means you, to ring in through that day or even before and pledge your support for this wonderful radio station and for Tuesday Home Time in particular. So that's four weeks' time from today. Come along to the May 20th Conference, 1916-17 to Anti-Conscription Campaigns, Impacts and Legacies. The day-long conference will feature speakers including Barry Jones alongside a host of local historians and will explore issues such as World War I activist groups, the Vietnam War and conscription and war-making powers today. Saturday, May the 20th from 9am to 4.30pm at Siteworks, Saxon Street, Brunswick. Tickets are $20 or $30 for keen supporters. Head to trybooking.com forward slash PGRV for more information and to book tickets. That's trybooking.com forward slash PGRV. The Brunswick-Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign is a 3CR supporter. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. The first round presidential elections in Ecuador on the 19th of February failed to deliver the 40% required for outright victory for Lena Moreno, the candidate for the PAIS alliance, the party of the outgoing president, Rafael Correa, of which he was the former vice president. The second vote was on the 2nd of April and resulted in a victory for Moreno, which the opposition claimed was due to election fraud. I'm speaking with journalist and author Fred Fuentes. And firstly, Fred, many people know little about Ecuador, although the government's support for Julian Assange did focus on one aspect. Could you give a brief history of the small nation on the northern west coast of South America prior to Rafael Correa election 10 years ago as the president? Ecuador... You know, for a long time, like much of uh, many of the South American countries, was a largely a poor, dependent country, dependent in the sense that it was largely, its economy revolved around the export of uh, primary materials towards richer, more industrialised nations. So therefore, in a lot of the times, its you know, economic policies were not decided in Ecuador itself, but were really decided in whether it was in Washington or in Brussels and the different sort of uh, relationships that were established between richer first world nations and, and the successive governments of Ecuador. What this meant was that because the, the government became so subservient to foreign interests, uh, because the economy became so dependent 
on what was occurring outside of Ecuador with a little to no regard to what was happening uh, inside Ecuador and how the economy was benefiting or not uh, the people of Ecuador. And what we saw was essentially starting in the early 90s, in fact in, in 1990, uh, was a whole series of well, mainly indigenous-led uh, uprisings and rebellions that turned Ecuador into one of the most unstable countries uh, in the world. In fact, pretty much throughout all of the 90s and up until Correa's election in 2006, uh, almost none of the presidents were able to fulfil their entire mandate, their entire term in government, largely because they were continuously being overthrown by one form or other of uprising or protest movement or rebellion, including in some instances uh, sort of military stepping in to remove governments and, and bringing um, other people into power. So, what, so you have this situation where the economy is largely not serving the interests of the people of Ecuador. In response, a whole range of social movements, but in particular the indigenous movement, leads these sort of protest movements, establishes a broader left party together with other social movements, in particular throughout the 90s we see the rise of young youth movements in, in urban poor sectors and women's movements, also environmental movements. All of these movements come together to form an electoral alternative to the established parties that does you know, quite well re reaching, I think at its peak, somewhere about 25% uh, percent of the, the voting turnout. And it's in this context and then in the final context of a rebellion that occurs in 2004 against the government that had actually been elected initially as a potential break uh, with the sort of traditional politicians with the neoliberal policies that have been implemented. And that was the government of, of Lucio Guterres. And in fact, a government that this left electoral formation that I mentioned had been had been a part of, at least in its initial stages, but is, is overthrown in 2004, paving the way to elections. And it's in that electoral context that Rafael Correa, who, as a brief term, as a Minister of Economy in this transition government after Lucio Guterres, really comes to the fore. And I think two things that Correa stands for really sort of hit the mark both with those social movements, indigenous movements, that had led this sort of protest against these elites that had sold off the country, and also you know, just thoroughly establish him as a, a credible alternative to mainstream Ecuadorians. And those two things that he proposes, firstly, is, is a constituent assembly. He says that the, the traditional political class, the traditional political setup, has become so out of touch with ordinary Ecuadorian people that it's necessary for, for a new social contract to be written up, for people to have a real say in the kind of country they want, and in particular to acknowledge and, and reflect the importance of the indigenous peoples of Ecuador, who for so long had been excluded and marginalised. So this, this was obviously a powerful demand of the indigenous movements themselves, of the social movements themselves. Um, and so therefore Correa takes this up and says, look, if I'm elected, this is one of my first pledges. You know, And in fact, to, to show how committed he was to this, when he runs for president, he doesn't put up any candidates or, or his party doesn't put up any candidates for the National Assembly, for the parliament, because he says, look, as soon as I'm elected, this parliament will be dissolved in order to pave way for this constituent assembly. So if I don't win, I'm not interested in little quotas of power. I'm not like the old traditional parties. Either I, I win and we go to a new Ecuador, or I lose and we continue the struggle in the streets. The second issue 
that Correa really raises and really gets to the heart of the problem in Ecuador is the question of dealing with Ecuador's foreign debt. Ecuador's foreign debt, largely contracted by the military dictatorships of the 60s and 70s, but then further increased under the neoliberal governments. And, and really this foreign debt was again used as a tool by the richer nations, the first world nations, to keep Ecuadorian governments subservient. So much to the point where actually in Ecuador's constitution it became enshrined that you know, a certain percentage of the budget, a certain percentage of oil wealth of that country had to immediately go to repaying this unpayable foreign debt, this debt that had already been repaid several times over but that because of interest meant that Ecuador could never get, get out of this hole. So Correa said, look, this, this can no longer continue. If, if we want to have an independent sovereign government, if we want to have our own sovereign economic policies, then we have to deal with this illegitimate debt, uh, this debt that the Ecuadorian people never wanted, never saw the benefits of, and therefore you know, shouldn't have to pay. And so, again, once in government moves ahead on this on this proposal, on this two-track constituent assembly uh, to fix up the political crisis in that country and a committee to investigate the foreign debt and decide which of it is legitimate, which of it is illegitimate, and which would ultimately conclude in a situation where, you know, about a third of Ecuador's foreign debt was completely wiped. The government said, we will not pay this, this third. Another third was to be, you know, uh, renegotiated. The terms were decided were not fair to Ecuador, and, and roughly, and uh, the other third was was deemed to be le legitimate debt that you know had been accrued through loans that the government had taken out, most likely to fund certain social programs, and so therefore the, those would be complied with. Those two demands, as I said, both were what really raised Korea in the eyes of uh, both the social movements, but also the more general. Ecuadorian population and then the actual ability to move forward and implement those two policies sort of cemented his sort of support amongst the people who's essentially, you know, at a certain point becoming the most popular president. Well, certainly not just of Ecuador in recent times. I mean, as I mentioned, none had been able to fulfil their mandate, you know, for the last two decades and Correa was actually able to serve out two terms or three terms in, in, in power. But he became one of the most popular presidents in, in South America. Can I take you back to for an explanation of why the social movements and the indigenous movements became such a power base? This is an, an important issue because it, it also gets to the heart of some of the complications that Rafael Correa and the social movements would encounter once Rafael Correa was elected. The social movements had, had essentially built up both their social power through these powerful mobilisations in the 70s um, and, uh, and, and in the early, early part of the 21st century. They'd built up this social power largely because, in particular, the indigenous movement had been able to move beyond simply fighting for indigenous-specific demands to raising banners that could reach to the broader population. Uh, of course, they never, never uh, dropped their demands that were more indigenous-focused, whether that was, which could largely be summed up in their vision of a, a plurinational state. Uh, what, the, what they said was that we had to recognise that Ecuador was, was a, a nation of nations, a country of nations, and that this hadn't been recognised. This needed to be recognised and, and, and made a reality through things like access to uh, education in indigenous languages, indigenous autonomies in certain regions where the indigenous population uh, were the majority, so that therefore elections uh, could be done through traditional customs, not simply through the, the representative democracy that, that had been imposed on them. 
the indigenous movements went beyond those demands, whilst never letting them go, but beyond them to lead struggles, for instance, against privatisation and anti-neoliberal struggles. And these struggles allowed them to link up, firstly, with other social movements, and then start to really have a real big sway in public debate, meaning that, that by the turn of the century, they had become a real social force uh, in Ecuadorian politics. They were not yet able to bring about their own governments, but they could certainly stop policies being imposed, and, they could, and they'd shown that they could also bring down governments if needed, if these governments were not willing to listen to the demands of the people. Together with this social power, the indigenous movements and social movements began to build an electoral power as well. And that was, at the time, uh, uh, referred to or known as the party called Pachacuti. Pachacutic bursts onto the scene somewhere, you know, about 15 to 20 percent of the vote in its first electoral turnout, wins a number of mayoralties, wins representation in parliament, and begins to really challenge on the electoral sphere. It never challenged in the sense of being able to win the presidency, but it became a, the biggest, essentially the biggest opposition bloc in parliament and with a strong regional support, particularly in the more uh, stronger indigenous uh, areas. This all builds up. And it provides an important support base for Rafael Correa. But as, as I mentioned, Rafael Correa doesn't directly come from these social movements. He, he's had some links with them, and that's largely because a lot of his close collaborators, his team, come from... He himself is an economics professor, and they, together with a, a range of other economists, left intellectuals, had been part of a Jubilee 2000, a campaign essentially about cancelling the, the third world debt. So through this campaign, they, they had links with the social movements, but Correa does not directly come from there. And what Correa is able to, to do is, whilst initially trying to form a strong electoral alliance with these social movements, uh, one that fails, he initially uh, suggests that, look, why don't we run a campaign where Correa is the president and the indigenous movements select the vice president? An agreement is not able to be met there, but what Correa says then to the social movements, to the indigenous movement, is, look, OK, we can't run together. We, we haven't been able to reach this agreement. But we, we can agree on some key political points. Constituent assembly, renegotiation of the foreign debt, removal of the US Manta military base uh, in Ecuador, revision of what is happening in the oil sector, in particular the need for greater state control um, and environmental protections. And these are the sort of issues that at least helps Korea to build some level of a bridge towards the indigenous movements who have become, as I said, so powerful because they've gone beyond just looking at their own immediate demands, their own immediate interests, and begun to build broader alliances around this, precisely these issues that Korea is campaigning around. Constituent assembly for a plurinational state, renegotiate foreign debt, get rid of the US military base, greater you know, community control and say over what happens to Ecuador's natural resources. Was the Constituent Assembly a success? Even Correa's probably harshest critics, perhaps excluding the, the very far-right critics of, of Correa, but even his most uh, staunch critics would agree that the Constituent Assembly was, was an important success, an important turning point, both for Correa's presidency, because it, it reaffirmed that he was a politician that stood by his word, a, a politician that was willing to go all the way to make sure that what he promised became a reality because the Constituent Assembly 
faced a lot of resistance. There were obviously a lot of sectors who did not want to see this sort of shake-up of, of the political system occur. But Korea pushed forward, the social movements pushed forward, uh, the people pushed forward. And in the end, the, the, the final you know, draft of the constitution was overwhelmingly approved uh, in a popular referendum and really has you know, made Ecuador a leading light in, in so many different aspects. Uh, you know, one can then have a discussion about how much of that, what is written on paper, has become a reality. And I think most would agree that there's still a long way to go. But, the, but there's just the simple fact that this, this discussion has been had on a nationwide scale, that everyone has been involved in reading and, uh, and debating the Constitution. They know that Constitution. They know those rights exist and are able to fight to you know, make these rights a reality, I think, has not just helped Correa and his presidents, but really has reshaped sort of politics uh, in Ecuador today. And the commitment on foreign debt, was he able to bring that through? Yes, so in, in the end, uh, this commission that was set up uh, to, this, to basically investigate uh, into the, you know, how this foreign debt had been occurred, who was responsible for it, where had the money been spent. A committee, a committee that should be mentioned was not just made up of parliamentarians, but involved, for example, some of those intellectuals and economists from the Jubilee 2000 campaign. So these are people that, you know, were already coming from a vision that, you know, all of this should be cancelled, but they were involved. There were also representatives from the Indigenous and Social Movements on this committee. So it was a very broad committee that spent a lot of time doing the research and making public all the information, being very transparent uh, in what they did. And so by the end of it, uh, Ecuador had a very strong case to basically, you know, do something that is, we're generally told is just, you know, impossible, uh, which is to just cancel a debt, to just say, look, we are not going to repay this debt because this debt was illegitimate, it was incurred under a military dictatorship, the money was used in a corrupt manner, um, and so therefore we don't have to pay this. Repercussions of doing that? Very little, because because it was so transparent. You know, the government, the committee had made a big effort to expose exactly, you know, why they were making these decisions and ensuring that everything was above board, that everyone knew it was going, and because there was so much popular support for this. In very few cases, because most of those cases where governments or institutions had been found out for these these dodgy deals, they, they were perhaps willing to let some of them go and perhaps try to hold on and renegotiate some of the other loans. But they, they did not really want to open a Pandora's box of, you know, allowing Ecuador to really be an example to the rest of the world that, that, that this was possible. So a lot of it was just sort of, you know, swept under and, 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 and allowed to go forward because there was just too much popular support in Ecuador for the moves by the Correa government or, or more specifically by the, by the committee, uh, which was, you know, set up to, to move ahead on this policy. And that's author and journalist and activist as well, Fred Fuentes, talking about the recent election results in Ecuador and we'll be continuing on that interview on the program next week. And I'd just like to read you part of an interview, an article in today's Australian newspaper. They were once political arch-rivals, but Tony Abbott and Julia Gillard this week have something in common, receiving honorary doctorates from Israeli universities within days of each other. Mr Abbott, who pledged his government would stand by the State of Israel when he became Prime Minister in 2013, will be presented with his honorary degree by Tel Aviv University on Thursday for his statementship in promoting freedom, democracy and human rights as well as his abiding friendship with the Australian Jewish community 
and support of Indigenous people. About 100 kilometres south in the city of Beersheba, Miss Gillard will be handed her degree today by Ben-Gurion University of the Negev, making it her fourth honorary doctorate. She will be honoured for her work for the disabled, efforts in education and gender equality, and for her steadfast support of Israel. I'm wondering if some Palestinian political prisoners get a, a mention anywhere or a thought from these two people. Stop bailing our kids. The juvenile justice system is a racist disgrace. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is launching a campaign to highlight factors including poverty, homelessness, loss of culture and racist over-policing as key contributors to youth incarceration in Victoria. The campaign kicks off with a week of action starting on the steps of State Parliament on Thursday the 25th of May at 12.30. Be there. For more information including campaign details, go to isjamelbourne.com. Let's hold the Andrews government to account and halt the law and order race to the bottom. ISJA Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. The Clock Tower Centre presents a definitive story from our neglected Indigenous history with Obidjeri Theatre Company's production of Corrandirk. Based on the true story of the men and women of Corrandirk Aboriginal Reserve who went head to head with the Aboriginal Protection Board. This special production brings these voices from the past to life. Performing Wednesday the 24th of May at 8pm. Bookings and more information at clocktowercentre.com.au or call 9243 9191. That's 9243 9191. A 3CR supporter. Next to the Philippines under Duterte, the condemnation of his policy regarding drug users and suppliers appears to have subsided in recent weeks, but that's not what's happening internationally. I'm speaking with Peter Murphy, human rights and labour activist. It's going to be discussed, Peter, at a meeting in Geneva of the UPR, the Universal Periodic Review. What's the relevance of that? It's a chance for the UN Human Rights Council to... Uh, systematically look at the actual practice of, on human rights criteria of uh, different member states of the United Nations on a regular basis. The intention is to do that every four years. This is the third time that the Philippines has come up for review since this process started back in 2006. It's a sort of a systematic approach in the United Nations on human rights and every country, including Australia, comes up for review. And how does the Philippines measure up when they do go? The Philippines has been criticised or there's been suggestions made to them formally to change processes because of the gross human rights abuses which are revealed you know, at the times of these reviews. The first one happened under President uh, Arroyo uh, in 2006. A, a situation now where we have President Duterte and uh, there was about 90 five member states were present in the hearing uh, last week and uh, 30 of them called on the Philippines to cease the killings of uh, civilians in the so-called war on drugs and uh, 20 states called on the Philippines to allow the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on 
extrajudicial killings and summary killings to be able to formally investigate the situation of the war on drugs. So these are pretty sharp actions to take place in the council. That the, the report, has, the whole thing isn't completed yet. And on the other hand, President Duterte had himself beamed into the, to the hearings and he was rather defiant about their right to proceed with the war on drugs as they had. So is there any compulsion on states to act on the recommendations? At this stage, I've never heard of any sanctions or compulsion on this, but the relatively systematic and and formal nature of the process means there's a fairly high sort of damage in terms of naming and shaming that is taking place. So I think, unfortunately, because of these dynamics around President Duterte's policies, The Philippines is uh, more and more isolated in the international community um, because of these things. Another big issue was the introduction, again, of the death penalty, which had been uh, stopped in the Philippines, but now, under President Duterte, it's about to be reintroduced. So another 20 states called on the government of the Philippines not to do that. He's being requested to allow a rapporteur to come. Yes. He's refused that. Yes. What happens after that? The UN Human Rights Council and even the rapporteur themselves, in uh, this case it's a woman called Agnes Kalamad, can repeat and uh, repeatedly request access. So as these uh, requests get made formally and then if they're rejected, you know, the, the sense of isolation of the, the Philippines government will just increase. And this will have an effect, you know, when President Duterte wants to visit somewhere in the world, um, he would be rebuked. This did happen to President Arroyo in a European tour in 2007, and she was rebuked in Denmark, and then she cancelled events in a couple of other European countries as a result. When's the next meeting to find out if there's any improvements? Well, it would be in four years' time. Oh, that's a long time, isn't it? That's a long time between hearings. But uh, there will be a written report come out of this review. So there'll be recommendations in that, and we should look for that soon. But I I don't know exactly when when that will be released. There is another body we're going to look at, and that's the Philippines institution called the Commission on Appointments. What's the history of this commission? Well, I think this is a fairly routine uh, structure in uh, many countries, and we see it happening in the United States, uh, for instance, with the new appointments to the cabinet of uh, President Trump. So the Philippines Constitution, you know, modelled a lot on the US Constitution. So uh, it has a a commission on appointments, which is made up of members of Congress, and uh, they have hearings to investigate or or discuss the character of the various appointments and then they have a vote on whether to confirm the appointment and in this case uh, I think it was on the 3rd of May after three different hearings the Commission on Appointments uh, rejected the appointment of Regina Lopez as the Secretary of the Department of Environment and Natural Resources. This was a really big thing because uh, Gina Lopez had really changed the way the Philippines government interacted with the mining industry and uh, she had ordered the closure of a large number of nickel mines, sufficient nickel mines to affect the world market in nickel and change the global price of nickel. 
up. So uh, quite a few Japanese companies in particular were furious about this, uh, and she justified it on the on the grounds of you know, massive environmental damage and displacement of uh, local communities, including indigenous communities, where these mines were operating. And she suspended five other mines, and uh, one of the mines affected is an Australian, New Zealand, Canadian company called Oceana Gold, uh, which has an operating gold and copper mine in northeastern Luzon at a place called Didipio. You know, the removal of Gina Lopez was a huge uh, setback to this uh, action on environmental damage and uh, a victory really for the mining industry, which is well represented in the Congress. But worse uh, still, Jan, is that uh, a week later, President Duterte appointed a replacement secretary, and this was a former chief of staff of the armed forces, a general named Roy Simatu. And, you know, people are really shocked at this because it's like going from one extreme to the other. And I think this demonstrates the delicate balance of uh, political pressures around the Duterte administration. On the one hand, for seven or eight months, we've had uh, an activist uh, environmentalist trying to protect the environment in this post, and now we've got a general who's going to continue repression of local communities and support for environmental devastation. So it's, as I said, one extreme to the other. And uh, it may be a bad sign for the future that the Cabinet will be more and more generals and generals who are associated with human rights abuses. And um, next two posts come up for appointment, for confirmation, are the Agrarian Reform Secretary, Rafael Mariano, who has been very active in getting uh, land distributed to uh, landless farmers, and uh, in particular at Hacienda Luisita in central Luzon. Um, which is a highly symbolic event, very, very important. I think for all farmers in the Philippines who are looking to get secure tenure on land. There's also the Secretary for Social Welfare and Development, uh, Judy Tagiwalo, who's uh, very much an activist as well, who is uh, refusing to provide some of her budget to members of Congress to spend as they wish in their own constituencies. So this is well known as a pork barrel type of funding and uh, it's been so massively abused and it's a re generally uh, just a theft from the people. By taking a stand, she's also defying the majority in Congress who really want that money. And uh, we'll see what the Commission on Appointments does with her. And of course, for Rafael Mariano, the uh, Agrarian Reform Secretary, he's facing a Congress full of landlords. So uh, again, it's uh, going to be a, a matter of real choice for President Duterte about where he will really stand in the end on these really important issues. But surely he he recommended them in the first place. Yes, that's right, he did. And uh, I think uh, it's really been, you know, uh, on the good side of the ledger for President Duterte when he has so many bad things, you know, on the other side of the ledger going on. So by replacing uh, Gina Lopez with the general, He's, he's, you know, digging a deeper hole for his administration, in fact. And uh, the, the other two that I've mentioned, you know, they're so uh, clearly people of high integrity. They can never be accused of corruption. 
they're really you know, helping out the image of the Duterte government. If they are removed, that would be you know, more to his loss than to them. You know, they know how to continue to be activists with their um, people's organisations, whereas he will be stuck with uh, uh, a government that promised a lot to the people but is going to turn out possibly to be just as bad or worse than the previous uh, administration, which he, he replaced in a landslide. What's been the reaction within the Philippines to these three people being kicked out? One has been kicked out so far. Yeah, so There's far. There's apprehension about the other two. Yeah, they're likely to go, though. Yeah, I think so. Um, but, uh, well, I think we're seeing protests being held outside the Commission on Appointments, protests being held outside their offices, and uh, widespread commentary, you know, that this is, uh, you know, really a bad thing. I think, uh, unfortunately, in the Philippines, the whole picture, the general picture, is one where even if, you know, a great majority of the people think something should happen and the opposite happens, the repression is quite severe, so it's very, very difficult for their voice to come through clearly because of the you know, atmosphere of fear uh, that, that prevails. It's got a lively media, and you can find a lot of commentary in the media in the Philippines on all sides, but you, you do, if you want to see it or hear it, you can hear the voices of people think with the long-term uh, uh, interests of the Philippine society at heart saying how bad <laughs> this situation is. Did Gina Lopez manage to do or get through anything at all or was it because she was only a temporary minister that she just had to make recommendations? Actually, no, she was able to issue orders. So she did shut those mines. Not all, you know, there were four or five that were recommended and they were still appealing and so on. But uh, basically a lot of nickel mines especially were closed down. And is that the only projects that she attacked while she was there? Yes, yes, yes. She made a very big effort to expose environmental damage at these mine sites. She issued videos taken from a helicopter. She flew personally over them and talked and made commentaries. I think you would have to say she was rather a novelty in the Philippines, but really quite clear in the message she conveyed. Just remind the listeners, Peter, about Oceana Gold and, and that mine at Didipio. This uh, ore body was located maybe many decades ago, but uh, uh, an exploration uh, permit was issued to an Australian mining company back in about 1989 or 1990, and uh, it had a different name then. It was called Climax, and uh, it was a very small company. It uh, did locate this uh, ore body, which was very high value, you know, high grade at the top of a little hill called Dinky Dye Hill at the Dipio. And as you dug, you know, as they went down and drilled down and tested lower, obviously the concentration of the ore was, was less, but uh, it was still quite a, a, a rich ore body. Not a huge one, but it it's, uh, uh, was definitely worth their while to pursue it. Now, the, the people in that location were Indigenous people who had already been displaced from Benguet uh, in the Cordillera a little bit to the uh, west, and higher up in the mountains because a dam had been built and their land had been flooded. And so they, they walked into this area in the 1960s and established a new agricultural community there based on uh, rice and also on citrus and some other fruits. And uh, you know, it was, I, I've been there in the year 2000 
and one and uh it was um a very beautiful place poor, a poor place but the people had a, a viable community going and the exploration was continuing but uh to get more capital to enable the exploration climax merged with another company called Arimco and then in 1995 the people who were running Climax Arimco more or less wrote the Philippines Mining Act and uh, it was adopted by the Congress that was under General Ramos or President Ramos so Australian mining interests and engineers had really have a deep role in the Philippines mining industry the local people were very divided um, about whether the mine should go ahead or not and basically the company was able to buy the support of uh, a number of families offering them cash for their land but a couple of years later I'm not sure of the year I think it's around 1997 98 the um, company then moved to demolish the houses on the on the land that they'd bought but they didn't really give any notice to the people so there was terrible violence and I think four or five people were killed and quite a few injured and then many arrested. So even among the people who were sympathetic to the mine or had got money off the mining company, they antagonized them and um there's a lot of bitterness even till today about that. One farmer who did did oppose the mine, uh he killed by a little bit by accident but but in a reckless uh incident uh, some a helicopter landed on his land, took some ore samples. he had warned them not to come on his land so he grabbed the shotgun and just fired at the helicopter but unfortunately he wounded the uh, i think it was a canadian engineer who was uh, in the craft and uh, that guy bled to death the farmer ran for his life and uh, a few months later was tracked down in a nearby city and just obliterated by gunfire by the by the military so you know again as a lot of violence in, in just in that one incident you know it's it's a place that's fraught with these stories uh, eventually it took so long for the company to bulldoze its way through really but i think the mine started operating in about 2013 2014 and the dinky die hill was the first thing to go it's, it's it's been completely removed and there's now a big hole in the ground the price of gold at the time was very high so the the uh, company just unilaterally doubled the size of the mine without any extra permits all of those uh, rice fields i saw they they're all gone there's a huge tailing stam twice as large as what they'd promised and in a different location and and the tailings water overflows into the river which goes to the Cagayan River it actually services a lot of farms downstream so there's a lot of concern about the pollution now the company claims there's no pollution uh, Gina Lopez disagreed they're fighting about all of that and now Gina Lopez has been removed so i think the company Oceana Gold will be happy you know with this situation extremely happy and pretty confident that they they won't have to stop operating now Oceana Gold was involved in another really scandalous event in El Salvador in these last 5 years or so where they were denied a, a permit to mine gold near the the only river in the country that in the river which supplies the capital city with water drinking water and uh, they sued the uh, government of El Salvador for 300 million dollars for loss of this business in an international tribunal and only only a few months ago the tribunal finally rejected them on that issue so you know we're dealing with a a company which is completely heartless 
and um, has no respect for people's rights, really, but hasn't been able to get it all its own way. You are listening to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett on Melbourne community radio station 3CR, and I'm speaking with human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy. And it's been reported that Oceana Gold appealed directly to Duterte against the suspension of their mining. That's correct, yeah. That's correct, and uh, this has been the case all the way through. You know, the company appealed to President Ramos, then it appealed to President uh, Arroyo, then it appealed to President Aquino at every point where there's been hold-ups or blockages. There was even a, um, you know, a, a major court battle over the Philippines Mining Act itself. Um, which would have affected the DDPO mine. And um, at every stage, the companies had privileged access to the palace um, and the people have had to struggle to find a, a court that will actually hear their case or find a, a, a cabinet secretary who will listen to them. Well, now Gina Lopez is no, no longer there to support them. Who can they rely on, the people? Well, I think that they will continue the grassroots campaigning, which they've been doing all along. And uh, they've got a supportive municipal government and they've got a support, uh, supportive provincial uh, governor in uh, Nueva Vizcaya, because, partly because the, the company doesn't agree on what uh, tax to pay to the local authorities. So they've got a revenue problem and it's one of these... You know, sh- shocking situations really where, where this mine can happen and there's really virtually no local benefit. The people have got political strength in, in the local and provincial government level and uh, as well as that, that, since the mine operated, the workers have been organised into a union and the union uh, has got progressive leadership and so that's another source of support for the people about what really happens at the mine. So I wouldn't say it's all over, but this is clearly a setback, the removal of Secretary Lopez. May Day, it's always a very important day in the Philippines, and I'd imagine this year there was no different. It's uh, bigger than for several years now. Reasons why? It, the reason being, I, I think, the heightened expectations around the Duterte presidency. So this is the first May Day since he became president. And in May last year... Although that was uh, the election was a f- not long after May Day, the people weren't so sure he would win. But there was a lot of demands put on him and he made a lot of promises, especially about increasing the minimum wage and abolishing contractual labour, what we would call casual or precarious uh, work. And uh, now, a year later, you know, the workers were really uh, pushing for him to deliver and uh, unfortunately he hasn't delivered. There was about 30,000 took part in the main rally in uh, Manila for the KMU and uh, in cities and uh, centres outside of Manila another 80,000 people were involved in rallies. So they, you know, the overall total they thought was uh, higher than in uh, many of the recent years. But um, in my own knowledge, in uh, the end of the 1980s, so soon after the EDSA revolution against uh, Marcos, the rallies were really in a scale of half a million to a million. You know, the labour movement has been really pushed down, but its uh, militant core, as I say, is, is uh, stronger at the moment than we've seen for a while. And uh, in Manila, the issue of contractual labour was very high on the agenda, and quite a few of the 
organisations present were new organisations of contractual workers. That is, these are people who have no legal right to have a union membership, created their own associations based on localities and organised through KMU were taking part in the rallies. That and the, the problem about the minimum wage is, is a, you know, really important. These are the two important issues raised by the workers. And I'd imagine the minimum wage is pretty low. You know, Australians are just shocked uh, at it, but it's about one-twentieth of the hourly rate of Australian minimum wage. Which will buy for a person working? Well, it'll hardly buy them the food. You know, they, they would give them enough income to buy food and perhaps very poor shelter. Um, that's it. It won't buy clothing. It's uh, very difficult for transportation and school, school costs for children. And in pesos, the, the minimum wage in Manila is around 480 and that's like uh, $20 a day, something like that. And the workers were, uh, you know, and we would say it's a modest demand. They wanted to be going up to 750 But you can see that from the employer's point of view, that's almost a you know, 80% increase. They uh, absolutely, of course, resisted. And uh, the wage-fixing system, the minimum wage-fixing system in the Philippines is based on you know, provincial wage boards. Uh, so there's many, many different minimum wages. And also there's a different minimum wage for agricultural workers compared to urban uh, industrial workers. The uh, Congress, though, has the power to legislate the minimum wage. So the, the demand is to abolish all of these variations in the minimum wage and have one national minimum wage at 750 pesos per day. And uh, it's very difficult to get a, um, a national strike or something like that when the, the trade union movement has been really squeezed down so much. But it comes out in these other things like Mayday rallies and uh, other popular rallies. Plus, in the elections, there's a sort of a national electorate system for some of the seats in Congress. And uh, the work, you, know, you know, millions of uh, people vote for the Workers' Party there that uh, is calling for the increase in the minimum wage. So it's, it's quite clearly uh, different ways to demonstrate the support for it. We started off, Peter talking about the war on drugs and what the, the world bodies think about Duterte's policy. What is happening on the ground at this time? Um, it seems that uh, it, it's just continuing. You know, there's been a few little hiccups for uh, Duterte along the way, but, he, you know, so he's rejigged the, the whole war idea back in January this year, but it seems that this was only a, a blip and... Uh, in a slightly different command structure for this program and maybe uh, slightly more control over the police involved. But it seems that the rate of uh, killing of these uh, civilians in really poor communities is continuing and there's some more evidence that some people are being killed allegedly in the war on drugs who really are political targets. That is the older style of... Uh, extrajudicial killing of um, people who are identified as opponents of the government in some way or other. So uh, I just heard, just through a friend, you know, that uh, a woman who's a refugee from the Philippines in the Netherlands had, had two brothers killed last week in the one incident, allegedly in the war on drugs, but they've done nothing to do with anything like that. So uh, I, I think it's political in a more direct way. 
but uh, believe me, the political effect of the war on drugs in the Philippines is to terrorise uh, local communities and uh, there is a pushback developing has been protests against it from the start but uh, now there's some more organized effort happening and based around some catholic church elements and human rights groups including the trade union people as well in localities so they call it rise up and it's meant to help people start to talk about what's happened in their families and to give support to each other so there's been many cases, you know, where the body of somebody is just left on the street and no one is daring to go near it. Or the funeral finally happens and no one except the absolute immediate family come to the funeral. No friends, no other relatives. So the push is to get people to talk about the situation and to offer support to each other. And uh, where this is happening now, the police seem to have pushed, pulled back. You know, there's distinctly less killings in those areas taking place i think it's very very tragic and um you know really heart-wrenching to to talk about it all this but this is this is i think you know how it really works so terror is really what we're talking about are the human rights defenders able to operate in situations like this well they do you have to be very courageous because quite a lot of human rights defenders have been just executed in a similar way over the years and including even in, in, in the last year under Duterte. So it's a, an association called Karapatan in, in Tagalog, that means rights. It's a human rights alliance of the Philippines, has local chapters pretty well everywhere. They try to have prominent people like priests or lawyers or similar sort of high-standing people take the front row as a sort of a shield but the people who have to go and document a case, obviously they interact right at the grassroots, they are exposed to some extent, and uh, then the surveillance and the text messages saying, you know, you're going to get killed, and then often it really happens. Yeah, the, the people involved in Karapatan are very courageous. And what about the Catholic Church? How involved are they in protecting their people? Well, I think that officially the Catholic church as a whole has taken a good stand on the against the war on drugs but you know it's a very broad thing the catholic church and uh, my experience the, the more progressive and uh, courageous social justice element is, is a minority but the, these are the ones in particular who have actually gone forward with the policy and actually done something so they've got broadly the protection of the church but it's not that strong that protection i wanted to say that there's a peace talks, you know, which is the overall, I think, uh, horizon for hope for the Philippines to get out of this type of story. The next round is due to start in the Netherlands in, in, on May 27, so it's not far away. But it is a bit uh, jeopardised by continuing arrests of uh, National Democratic Front uh, peace consultants in the Philippines and uh, tailing of them, you know, like intense surveillance, which is a threat. One of the things that's most difficult, but I do think the, the NDFP really wants to see how far they can go in the discussion about land reform and industrial development. And uh, these are really basic economic and social reforms that are needed for the country to get past this social conflict. Who attends these meetings? panel appointed by the government 
and a panel of negotiators appointed by the National Democratic Front. So uh, you can see the images on the internet if you if you just Google it. But uh, it's you know the teams are quite large, so they're 20 to 30 on each side. Obviously, there's key negotiators in the panel, but then there's working groups on different subtopics, so that they can try to make rapid progress. And in fact, you know there has been quite a bit of progress on these topics under Duterte, even though there's been some pretty big shocks and halts to the process. Uh, so there is some grounds, I think, to expect some further progress. But the counter-pressure from the military, which you can see coming through in these recent cabinet appointments, makes you wonder just how it will play out. Can you just clarify, Peter, how the meeting works? There's a, a formal agenda which has been agreed for quite a long time Finally, you know, the, the different topics come up in order and we've got to the first substantive one now, which is this social and economic reforms to, to do really with uh, the living standards of the people and their democratic rights to participate uh, more equally in the economy. The next one is uh, political and constitutional reform. Both sides are discussing doing that next year and concluding the social and economic reforms this year. So... That's very ambitious since if you realise that the original agenda was established back in, I think, 1992 in The Hague. So it's a long time, but there seems to be more political momentum now. When this uh, little session finishes, which may be after five days or so, and at the end of that day we'll set the date for the next session. So we don't really know the detailed timetable after this, but... They've got these broad targets to conclude some of these major topics this year and next year. The whole thing is facilitated by the Royal Norwegian Government as the third-party facilitator. So this is a pattern similar in a way to the Palestine talks or the Irish uh, Good Friday Agreement talks and so on. So there's, there's a lot of um, international political for the process to succeed and of course there's a lot of frustration but one one good bit a bit of good news from my point of view and for us in Australia is that the Australian government did speak up in February this year when the talks were cancelled unilaterally by the Duterte government and uh, Australia was one of a number of countries which came in to support the Norwegian government and help get the thing back on track you don't often hear that Australian government did anything like this, but it's very positive that they did do it. You certainly don't. That was Peter Murphy, is an activist in Sydney for human rights and trade union rights, particularly for the people of the, the Philippines. Fair Go for Pensioners is holding a protest rally on Wednesday the 24th of May at the State Library of Victoria at 11am to defend our rights against continuing cuts to welfare payments and essential public services. This means down goes living standards of low-income groups and up goes poverty. Australia does not have a welfare problem. It has a poverty problem. Take a stand with Fair Go for Pensioners to defend your rights. The State Library of Victoria, 11am, Wednesday the 24th of May. Fair Go for Pensioners is a 3CR supporter. Come along to the May 20th conference. 
1916-17 anti-conscription campaigns, impacts and legacies. The day-long conference will feature speakers including Barry Jones alongside a host of local historians and will explore issues such as World War I activist groups, the Vietnam War and conscription and war-making powers today. Saturday, May the 20th from 9am to 4.30pm at Siteworks, Saxon Street, Brunswick. Tickets are $20 or $30 for keen supporters. Head to trybooking.com forward slash PGRV for more information and to book tickets. That's trybooking.com forward slash PGRV. The Brunswick Coburg Anti-Conscription Commemoration Campaign is a 3CR supporter. Members of the New York Catholic Worker Community, Code Pink, the Upstate Coalition to End the Wars and Ground the Drones, Friends of Franz and Ben and Voices for Creative Nonviolence recently ended a week-long fast in New York City across from the UN at the Isaiah Wall. Their focus was and is the risk of mass starvation in the Middle East country of Yemen, one of the oldest centres of civilization in the Near East, which is subjected to a sea blockade and constant bombing. One of those participating in the hunger strike was Cathy Kelly, a co-coordinator of Voices for Creative Nonviolence. Cathy, can you first tell us a little of the history of Yemen, which in recent decades was in fact two countries, and its relationship with its northern neighbour, Saudi Arabia? Well, thank you, Jan, for your abiding interest and concern over people who are suffering because of war and displacement. And in Yemen, there is the risk of an artificially created famine. It's an extremely troubling situation. UN people have been sounding the alarm. And Yemen is a country that's been ravaged by a civil war. And although at, at one point it seemed as though forces fighting in that war might get together and and resolve it. It it was then prolonged as uh, the Houthi tribes launched new attacks and then once uh, the Saudi Arabian government became involved with airstrikes and the blockade and uh, special operations all supported by the United States. So I suppose when we think about the civil war that's been going on in Yemen, we should go back to a time in uh, 2014 when that war began. And the government of Abdul Mansur Hadi was forced out. And at one point, uh, one of his vice presidents, named Salah, uh, was uh, given support by the Houthi rebels. And so the Houthis have now taken over the capital of Sana'a, and the former president, Hadi, is residing in the south of the country. And he more or less took the bank with him. And so the bank hasn't been functioning. People haven't been paid who were civil employees for, for quite some time. And the, the Saudis, since their involvement, have been regularly bombing the major port called al Hodeida. Now, that's a port through which 70% of Yemen's food passes, but the Saudis have bombed all five of the major cranes that would have been used 
to transport food from boats onto vehicles or onto transport mechanisms. And this has meant now that Yemen, which is dependent for 90% of its food on importation, is losing a major means to import food. And so as long as that blockade continues, it's a naval blockade, but it has also been reinforced by airstrikes, there's a rising concern for people who are facing starvation. The supposition right now is that there are 14 million people who are food insecure, and then of that number, another 7 million are facing severe acute malnourishment, and that includes lactating pregnant mothers and also children. In the United States, on January 29th of 2017, arranged a special operations attack in a, 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 part, a small village really called Al-Rayel in the Baidu province. And in that attack, locals thought that it was a rival tribe, and so they came running to fight back. Then they saw the planes overhead, and they continued to fight, even though they realized that this must be either the United States or Saudi Arabia using airstrikes against them. And so, as it turned out, there were 30 people killed, half of whom were children and women, and one of whom was a United States Navy SEAL. It so troubled me when I was hearing the account when the president, uh, our president, addressed both houses of Congress, he focused on <clears throat> the widow of the Navy SEAL. The Navy SEAL's name was Chief Petty Officer Brian Owen. And he, for four minutes, focused uh, what was a standing ovation and applause, which seemed very unsettling as a, you know, a way to respond to this woman's obvious bereavement and effort to maintain composure, but at no point ever did they mention what country her husband was killed in or any circumstances that were related to, to that attack. And I think that may be because had the circumstances been disclosed, had people realized that there were 30 people killed that same day and half of them were children and women, it wouldn't have seemed to be so heroic. And of course, there was no mention of Yemen being on the brink of a conflict-driven famine. Just explain a little bit more about why the Saudis are involved and why the U.S. are supporting the Saudis. Well, actually, that's a very difficult question to try to puzzle over. Some believe that the Saudis are involved because they, for domestic reasons, for you know, popularity of their government, need to appear to be uh, able to expand and to gain control over other resources. Others have said that the Saudis are using this war as a means to confront Iranian forces. But that argument doesn't seem to hold because the Houthi rebels are actually not very close to the Iranian ayatollahs. They don't have ayatollahs and they don't follow the same kind of Shia faith that is practiced in Iran. There may have been some Iranian supply of weapons to the Houthi rebels, but nothing even close to what the United States has supplied to the Saudi Arabian government. The United States under Obama gave $115 billion worth of weaponry, and um, it's about $3.4 billion all told over the past three U.S. administrations. And uh, now it seems that although President Obama had put a hold 
on giving more weapons to the Saudi government because of concern over the targeting of civilians and the attack against civilians. It seems like President Trump now wants to rescind that hold, and they may actually give ongoing support for an escalated attack against that port that I mentioned, Al-Hadeda. And this would be disastrous. It would very likely push more people into um, running in panic and becoming displaced and further exacerbate the problems in distribution of food. And just to acknowledge that many of the people fleeing Somalia, the fighting in Somalia, have actually ended up in Yemen and they're now facing double jeopardy. Well, this is so curious to us. The United States had accepted uh, 89,995 refugees in 2016. And so we were astounded to realize that Yemen had taken in upwards of 117,000 refugees, even though they were facing such dire situations, and that um, about 225,000 Somalis have taken up residence in Yemen. But as people are going without food and without water and without medical care, some have taken to roadways and, you know, they'll reach a point where they may have heard by rumor that there's food or medicine available and they get there and there isn't anything. Iona Craig, a very brave reporter, a young woman who herself is Muslim and has been able to, at the risk of her life, move around small villages inside of central and southern Yemen, has reported being with people who have fled from their villages and are seeking some kind of aid, and, and they're actually eating the trees out of such desperation. And so some Somalis understandably thought, well, we've got to flee, and took to a boat, and, and that boat was attacked earlier in the month, and uh, 42 people were killed. And there's virtually nowhere for the people to go, is there? They can't go north because that's Saudi Arabia. They can't go west because that's the sea. They can't go south. That's the sea. What's to the east? Well, the people are, as you say, stranded. And along with the dire situation in Yemen, the United Nations is saying that there are near-famine conditions in South Sudan, Nigeria, and Somalia. So there's a trio of near-famine conditions, also conflict-driven, that could lead to 16 million people not able to survive. And then when you add the numbers of people who are facing possible death by starvation in Yemen, it could be as many as 20 million people. Now, this is a terrible, terrible catastrophe. And President Trump has slashed the budget that the United States would try to give in terms of assistance to the United Nations programs that try to help alleviate famine conditions and starvation. You're comparing the situation in Yemen to the situation in Iraq earlier, the impact of the blockade. Well, certainly when we were going over to Iraq to break the economic sanctions, we were aware that Iraq also was importing 90% of its food, so the economic sanctions had a a very swift and dire impact on Iraq, and those economic sanctions were maintained for 13 years and caused directly contributed to the death of 500,000 children under age 5. So we've understood the callousness that United States foreign policy can engage in 
in terms of uh, keeping people undereducated in the United States and maintaining policies that uh, ostensibly were going to affect the dictator Saddam Hussein, but you know it's not clear that he ever missed a meal. Those economic sanctions caused such tortuous suffering and death, primarily to the most vulnerable people in Iraq. And so we think something similar is happening in Yemen. The most vulnerable people, the elderly, the sick, the children, are the ones affected by a state of siege and by constant airstrikes and now by the United States' involvement in supposedly trying to go after al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula. But in, in, in actuality, Juan Cole has pointed out that they may actually be helping the al-Qaeda forces because the Houthis are sworn enemies of al-Qaeda, and the United States, by supporting Saudi attacks on the Houthis, is actually giving the uh, al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula um, maybe a little bit more leeway to developing recruits and finding weapons and waging attacks. But there must be more to the picture of why the U.S. is supporting Saudi Arabia with such an obscene amount of weapons. Well, we do wonder about that. I suppose with Saudi Arabia having as a main trading partner China, perhaps the United States is anxious that at some point the Saudis might say, well, we just assume peg our currency to the Chinese currency uh, rather than continue with the U.S. dollar. So it may be that the United States is anxious not to in any way alienate uh, this longtime ally. But it's very difficult to, to see what gains the United States will have by perpetuating an alliance with a country that has violated human rights conditions in its own country, in Bahrain, and now in Yemen. How does the, the American government explain to the people of America their support for Saudi Arabia? Because people are, are horrified at, at what the, the government of Saudi, or the, the kingdom of Saudi Arabia does to its own people. Do they try and justify their support for such a, a terrible regime? Well, sadly, it, it doesn't seem to be an issue that the successive administrations have, have wanted to address with the U.S. public by giving full and thorough reports. Um, I, I, I would guess that most people in the United States have no idea where Yemen is and uh, very little uh, awareness of, of the United States' levels of support for the Saudi Arabian government, and even though President Trump recently welcomed one of the princes, and, and even though um, General Mattis has now gone to visit Saudi Arabia, and he went on to visit Israel, Egypt, Australia, and then he's going to visit the government of Qatar before coming back to the United States. But it seems that he has promised to strengthen ties with the Saudi-led coalition that is attacking Yemen. Well, I have seen articles, for instance, in the New York Times that would awaken people to the ways in which women are discriminated against and are not allowed to travel without a male companion, are not allowed to have an equal place in the workforce. And I think that there have been reports, again, in the New York Times and perhaps on NPR, National Public Radio, about executions by beheading, which uh, have happened so regularly in Saudi Arabia for uh, 
anybody is perceived as being a dissident. I don't know that the mainstream news has really focused very much on building public awareness about the Saudi government's abuses. It was unthinkable to many of us that at one point Saudi Arabia within the UN occupied a place on the human rights commission because it, it, it certainly would seem to us that, that any analyses of human rights abuses should be focusing on that, on that kingdom. And another side to the US support to Saudi Arabia is the, the weapons manufacturers in the US making billions by selling these weapons to Saudi Arabia. That's certainly true. Uh, Lockheed Martin had uh, just been given the green light to sell these multi-mission ships to Saudi Arabia, which I suppose are being used to patrol and enforce the naval blockade. And then um, the jet, well, the, the refueling, air refueling of the Saudi jets happens twice a day. And, and that's a, a very expensive endeavor that I'm sure helps military contractors make profits. It's such a regular event. And then, of course, the United States has been selling weapons to Saudi Arabia and giving Saudi Arabia foreign aid in order to purchase our weapons, Israel and Saudi Arabia being uh, the two main recipients, uh, or lar- uh, the two recipients of the largest amounts of foreign aid. Uh, there's very little encouragement for negotiation or dialogue or peacemaking because I don't think the military contractors want to see things moving in that direction. And very little peacemaking also in the countries which you have been involved with for quite a number of years now, Afghanistan and Iraq. The fighting just seems to continue, the deaths continue. Well, we were very distressed to see that the United States had decided to bomb in the province of Nangarhar, a a place where there purportedly were tunnels that they felt should be targeted by the largest non-nuclear bomb in the United States arsenal, this massive uh, ordnance air charger um, bomb. They call it the Moab, and some have said it's the mother of all bombs. And, of course, that's a terrible phrase to use. You should never confuse motherhood with bombs that rip people apart and create contamination of ground and water and displace people who run away in panic. And I think those things are exactly the kinds of results we could predict after the United States used this bomb. It seems that President Trump is not very interested in regular briefings, um, in contrast to President Obama, who would you know, read through a 140-page briefing in one day and ask for more information. President Trump has said, keep those briefings to about two pages, and I'd like to see pictures and graphs on those two pages, and he sometimes doesn't even read those two pages. And so this has meant that the generals are being told by President Trump, um, I trust you, you have my faith in whatever you decide is best to do. And so if they've got a weapon that they'd like to try out and could do so in a country of the United States is not much oversight. In fact, some of the positions, the, the jobs in, in the Trump White House haven't even been filled yet, which further lessens the, the oversight that might be exercised. And it's worrisome because uh, General Mattis, for instance, has long said that he believes Iran is the country that's the source of mischief-making and troubles 
in the region. And so uh, might he want to dismantle the pact that was set up when John Kerry uh, negotiated with Zawid uh, Zarif in, in Iran? Uh, well, that would be a disaster, I think, if that pact were undone. But there's, uh, I think, a lot of disrespect for efforts at peacemaking and negotiation that had been made before President Trump came into office. How would you assess his first 100 days? I think the executive orders that he has issued have awakened the U.S. public and the world to how erratic and unpredictable and dangerous he can be. Unfortunately, uh, his replacement of the Obamacare plan didn't go through. He hasn't been able to go ahead with his efforts to ban people from Muslim countries from coming into the United States. I think the courts effectively have blocked that, at least temporarily. And uh, he talks about his desire to build the wall, but I, we're not sure he's going to be able to move ahead with the funding for that. So I think there's a, a heightened recognition about how dangerous his policies could be, but at least there's some reaction in terms of checks and balances And the media has been, until he bombed Syria, very, very critical of him. And and I think it's shameful that when he launched 59 Tomahawk cruise missiles at Syria, then they started to say, oh, well, now he's become presidential material. I think that's shameful to think that that somebody would gain stature as as a president because of being willing to fling our missiles at another country that is no threat to us whatsoever. Would you say there's a an awakening of the people in the U.S., but maybe it's a bit too late now that he has been elected? Well, I think that we, we are certainly seeing more favourable media coverage of people engaging in activism and in demonstrations and in opposition. We're also seeing um, regular demonstrations, for instance, on Earth Day, uh, scientists marched all around the world, but also all across the United States. And I think uh, the failure of the Trump administration to appreciate the threats of global warming and climate change have uh, awakened a, a great deal of concern on the part of people in universities and in scientific endeavors. So it may be that there's more of an awakening, but this isn't to say that the supporters of President Trump are going to go away or that Trumpism will somehow be diminished. Uh, And so, as you say, in some ways it may be too little and too late. What's on the books for you in the next little while? Well, I'm looking forward to being able to do some speaking in uh, the uh, state of Vermont and out in California. And then uh, I really need to buckle down and try to do some writing. I I have some people who very kindly offered to publish a book if I would just sit down and write it. (laughs) So that's going to take a little discipline on my part. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kathy. Well, thank you, and we, we greatly appreciate the concern you voiced for people in Yemen, and we hope that there will be worldwide support for sounding the crisis, sounding the alarm, and trying to alleviate the suffering they're facing now. And that's Kathy Kelly from Voices for Creative Nonviolence, lifelong peace activist. It's time for me to go. I'll be back next week at 4 o'clock.
and then it will be three weeks to the Radiothon program. But I'll say bye for now. And Dunbar Law will be here in about one and a half minutes' time. Bye for now.